I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Hello. This week we're podcasting from another unusual location. Last week it was the cottage. This week it's the basement of our new office. (laughs) Yep, there's a lot of boxes in here and some paint and some donuts that have gone off. Yeah, but we chose it mainly for its excellent selection of loo roll, which we hope might make the quality of this podcast a bit better, if that makes sense. It's, it's an interesting change of space. Yeah, so I mean, it's been it's been quite a hectic week because we were at Latitude last week and then we've moved office straight after that and we haven't fully got our new podcasting suite set up. Never mind, the show goes on. Podcasting suite would be a generous phrase to ever describe. <laughs> room with chairs, room with chairs is what I mean by that. Oh, no chairs, as we are on the floor right now. <laughs> but other big stuff has been happening this week. Nicki Minaj and Taylor Swift have had all kinds of beef. You yeah. stayed up quite late talking about this on Twitter, I know. I have. It's been just, if you love pop stars on Twitter, this has just been an incredible week for pop stars on Twitter because, first of all, Nicki Minaj was just making all these, like, very, very smart, uh, yeah, critically aware tweets uh, about why she may not have got a nomination for Best Video at the uh, MTV Music Awards for Anaconda, even though it was everywhere. And then Taylor Swift decided that one of Nicki's tweets was a dig at her. Uh, took it very personally um, because uh, Nikki had said, you know, if you've got like a, the stereotypically like horned over white skinny body, then your video will get a nomination. And Taylor was like, hey, all I've ever done is love and support you, which was very uncomfortable for everyone because it was like, Taylor, you really missed the point here. Uh, and then Katy Perry got involved. As ever. Yeah. Best day of <laughs> Katy Perry's life, I'm sure. Um and Ed Sheeran got involved. It was just massive, but it basically ended with Taylor Swift apologising, which and, I think was quite a good outcome. Really. And, and quite a nice apology as well. She was basically, I misspoke. She, she it wasn't one of those like non-apology apologies where she yeah. said, I'm sorry if you're offended. She said, I'm like, sorry that my video was so good. Yeah, she actually said, like, I misspoke, I misunderstood and I'm sorry, which yeah. I thought was, was good. I mean, we can't really know to what extent it was actually sincere, but... I'm but, pretty pleased. Yeah. And Nicki Minaj was like, you know what? I've always really liked Taylor Swift, so this is fine. We're we're all cool. So it's gone pretty well, I think. Yeah, and and nice to see one a celebrity feud end in such a way that it cannot forever be cited by the Daily Mail as like a cat fight. Or yeah, something. exactly. They can't like trivialize the the mm. issue at hand, which was actually very important by just being like, oh, cat fight. Mm. So yeah, that was big stuff this week. 
But what we're going to talk about now uh, is My Mad Fat Diary, which is a Channel 4 drama that's had three seasons and made waves. Uh, we're here with Barbara Speed, who's a Mad Fat Diary fan. Yes, yeah, not a mad fan, but <laughs> a fan. Um, I started watching the first series uh, when I was in my first year of university, so it's been kind of going for three years with three kind of different series. And it's an interesting one because, so when it finished um, kind of earlier this month, there were a lot of think pieces about it which you might not really expect because it's a teen program it's aimed at teenagers but there were kind of fully grown people saying how they kind of wish this had existed kind of when they were younger i guess it's a bit like stuff like rookie that is treating young concerns in a more serious way um which people really responded to i guess yeah and i think one of the things that was interesting about it as well is it seems to have done fairly well sort of by word of mouth in the states Mm. Mm. um because it it does feel to me like a very british program i don't know if you want to summarize basically what it's about yeah so it's based on the diaries of ray earl who's a british writer and broadcaster and she um it's actually about her it is her diary so it's really set in the late 80s but for the program they kind of transposed it to the late 90s my name is ray it's 1996 i'm 16 16 stone and desperate for a shag oh yeah and i've been in a mental hospital for a while but i'm gonna listen to the love doctor and take on the big wide world of course that means leaving the madhouse behind me today is the first day of the rest of my life I'm going to find out if there really are any cool people in Lincolnshire. Um, she's a big like music fan, so they've kind of made her an 80s music fan living in the 90s so they can kind of keep some of her um, the stuff that she likes. Is it um, set in the 90s? Yeah, it's set in the late oh, 90s. That absolutely they... passed me by because it just feels it's like those timeless, kinds of... Yeah. isn't it? It's sort of that, yeah, it's like the the eternal not now isn't it it's Mm. just it's definitely not now but it could really be anything from i'd say like 1975 to 2005 because she's got all these like um oasis blur Britpop posters and like damon albon's on the back of her mirror so Mm. i was quite like oh maybe she's just like because the 90s are big now so maybe she's just like yeah yeah. she's doing all that for the first time but it's a bit like i mean caroline you made the comparison to me of made by wolves the catlin moran raised by wolves raised by wolves sorry um and it's similar to that in that maybe when it's somebody's memories from a quite different era and then they put it into a yet another era, it does become a bit kind of yeah. ageless. It actually know. really reminded me of that, which is another sort of um, Channel 4 series. It's more explicitly a comedy, um, but it, especially in terms of its like place, I really, really love like British TV shows that are set in these sort of towns that could basically be anywhere well, in the is, UK. This is Lincolnshire, isn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah, and even though we're a long way from Lincolnshire, I, I, I really like speaks to my like growing up. Mm. Even though I'm mm. I'm from the south, as you can probably tell from my mm. accent compared and it's to very British. Like a key location is the chip shop where they just yeah. always go all the time, and the pub, um, and the pub, yeah, where, the pub that serves underage people. Yeah, yeah which exactly. is a real classic. Everyone went to the the pub that just like turned a blind eye at the sixteen year olds, mm. and that yeah. all of that stuff felt very very timeless. But yeah, so it is interesting that it found an American audience in that context. But I think that maybe, I mean, Rayel herself, when the series finished, wrote a piece about why it's still so relevant now, even though her diaries are obviously kind of before young people today were born. Mm-hmm. Um, but she just says that with any kind of teen story, the themes are kind of so universal and everyone's been there. Like maybe they had different insecurities in their small town in Georgia, America, but they would be able to identify with it. Um, and yeah, and it has a huge internet following as well. It's obviously hard to know exactly where that's located, but um, obviously young people from lots of different places really responded to it. And I th- I'm guessing part, or probably 
the majority of what they respond to is its treatment of mental health issues. Yes, I mean, quite clearly, I think a lot of the people just directly identify with the main character. So just to give some background, the series opens with her leaving a mental health facility where she's been for the past four months and then she goes back to school and doesn't tell anyone where she's been and so yeah, she's kind think of she's been in france <laughs> yeah exactly it's a euphemism um but she's kind of navigating all that normal teenage stuff but with this slightly darker backstory um and i think that a lot of people either who've been through something similar or kind of identify with some of that stuff um, because she's also like a bigger character as well which um, hence Mad Fat Diary um, but again I think a lot of people identify with her because she's actually also very confident and a big storyline is just that she makes these kind of really great friends and gets this really great boyfriend and I think it's quite a, a sort of encouraging program for people who maybe have struggled with similar things. I definitely saw I mean I've only seen a couple of episodes but I definitely intend to watch more but there's a moment in the very first one where she goes to a, a pool party with these new friends and there's this horrifying moment Aww. which for anyone who is like more than a size 10 will have had a moment mm. like or maybe this. just anyone, or just anyone probably, yeah. where you know you're wearing a swimming suit in front of people who you're trying to impress and she decides to try and go down to show that she's fun to like go down the slide into the pool and she gets stuck and the way this is dramatized is brilliant because like the camera kind of hovers on the back of her head and there's like kind of everything slows down and there's like kind of almost like a heartbeat in the back when you can just feel her thing her thinking and her panic but the way she comes out of it is that she makes a joke like she she says to the one of them like oh you've got big muscles come and help me pull me out of this slide and everyone laughs and basically she signaled to everyone that like i'm okay with this so you can be okay with this too and there's there's another level to that isn't there where she's really embarrassed all the scars on her legs from when she's been self-harming and it's and and her size and the fact that she doesn't know these people and she's a bit uncomfortable in her friends like posh house compared Mm. to hers and it's just all these feelings that you remember so vividly going on at once and it's just so beautifully done Mm. It's, a, it's a real crushing moment and then it just lifts instantly yeah it's, it's really really and i you mentioned the her music taste i i really love the use of music in the show mm. both for her characters because obviously she's decided that you know i'm, I'm never going to be pretty or popular but being really into music is something that i can bring to this mm. social group and then also the way that they blend that into the the background music of the show like there was loads of suede and blur and mm, like bands yeah. I really like and had sort of vaguely forgotten about but that that was really good um but I specifically wanted to talk about her relationship with food as well because that's particularly in the first episode this kind of cupboard where her mother keeps all of the sweets and chocolate is like a recurring image in her mind whenever anything goes wrong she mm. immediately starts thinking about well I could just I could just eat and then this would all go away and there's also, I mean, another thing worth mentioning is the editing is done in such a way that it's always very focused on her mental state, which again is, I think, why it's actually a very good representation of mental illness. So say with this cupboard, it'll kind of like everything goes dark and the cupboard is glowing. Yeah. I can't remember exactly, but because it's also a diary, there's often kind of sketches Annotations on the screen. On the screen yeah. yeah. And so you're always very much inside her head and this kind of obsession with this cupboard and like revulsion at the same time is very... And she'll walk past it and funny. kind of touch it fairly gently, but there's... It, earlier on in the episode before she reaches a crisis where she's like okay I'm gonna like go to the cupboard her relationship with food actually made me think of a bit from Catelyn Moran's How to Be a Woman that I wanted to read which is about the kind of demeaning of food issues and sort of body dysmorphia below things like drug and alcohol addiction when actually it comes from exactly the same impulse which I think is a view that she got quite a lot of sort of flack for when she expressed it but I think it's perfectly valid so in the book she writes 
In a nutshell, then, by choosing food as your drug, sugar highs or the deep soporific calm of carbs, the valium of the working classes, you can still make the pack lunches, do the school run, look after the baby, pop in on your mum, and then stay up all night with an ill five-year-old, something that is not an option if you're caning off a giant bag of skunk or regularly climbing into the cupboard under the stairs and knocking back quarts of scotch. Overeating is the addiction choice of carers. Mm. And I think that's kind of speaks to Ray's character, doesn't it? Because yeah. she feels like a, a total screw-up. But actually, she's... For someone of with her problems, she's extremely functional. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think that something I quite like about the programme is it's a lot of it is about being fat and about this kind of stuff, but they make the fatness quite separate from her mental health problems. And there's quite there yeah, was a piece in the on the AV Club about um, kind of size and women in TV, and it says it kind of says something quite interesting, which is that it's about living with being fat, not trying to get thin. It's not really, yes, there's not yeah. really a focus on her thinking, if I'm thin, I'll be okay at all. It's that she needs to overcome the mental health issues. That's the problem. The fatness mm-hmm. is kind of either irrelevant or just a symptom of that. Yeah, and her um, friend Chloe, who's like much slimmer, is um, smoking in a in a changing room and she's like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, you know, I've started smoking, it keeps you thin. And she kind of rolls her eyes. Yeah, and I did, I did like the imagery actually of the bit where she kind of steps out of her fat self. She kind of unzips her an imaginary fat suit and throws it in the mm-hmm. bin. But again, that's portrayed very much not as a, like, I will be happier if I'm thinner, just as a kind of, like, the weight of my issues. Yeah, if I am happier, I won't care, basically. And that, again, the narrative of... Because over the course of three series, she does get much better and she does have all kinds of successes and those are never to do with her body changing at all. They're just about her own self-acceptance and kind of seeing those things that are great about herself. So, as you are saying, like, the humour stuff, her interests. She's, like, actually very popular with her group of friends. Um... It's really interesting. I think the the language that's used to talk about like sp- specifically women's bodies as well is really great in it. Like she she calls her doctor right at the beginning, um, professional like waterer of lady gardens or something, and she uh she talks about her body as a condom full of bolognese. Like she's her one of the things that's so amazing about her character is that you're really drawn to the way she speaks and like the way she like pierces through things in a really nice way. Yeah, the whole experience of watching it was so so lovely. And I I do really <laughs> sympathise with that point of view that um, if it had existed when mm. I was roughly that age, mm. I would have been so yeah. into it. Because it's, it's not about kind of easy answers. Like, I think there is an element to which saying, oh, well, you can have a really great personality or a really great sense yeah. of humour. I mean, it's not... Or if you're not, fat, you should be funny. Yeah. yeah, it's not a kind of utopia, but it's this kind of way in which like there is always a way to live. There is always a way to kind of get by and like have a good time or whatever. Um, which I think for if you were like... 15 and really unhappy I actually think would be like a very encouraging watch yes well a great recommendation and I think we highly recommend it to listeners as well it's all on what's the channel for catch up 4OD I don't know if it is it in America we don't know but it definitely is here Mm. yeah and it's really good Now we're joined by our colleague Stephen Bush and we're going to talk about the new movie Ant-Man, which is the latest addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
Stephen, what did you make of this film? I thought, you know, it was it was it was a good fun romp. I mean, there are some problems with it, and I am sure we will discuss in in great length. But I think it was a good kind of fun uh, expansion onto the Marvel universe, and had lots of sort of nice knowing winks to it. I sort of felt like the whole film was one long knowing wink. Yeah, I was going to say it was it was that was the majority rather than Get the minority. Get it? He's tiny. He's yeah. really little. Ooh. We should say if you haven't seen Ant Man that. I don't believe you can spoil Ant-Man in the sense that it's all in the title. But if you are intending to see it and care deeply about these things, maybe skip to the next segment of the podcast. So, Ant-Man, he is literally a man who shrinks to the size of an ant, and that is his superpower. Imagine a soldier the size of an insect. The ultimate secret weapon. You give godlike powers to everyone, it's gonna be chaos. So how do we stop him? By knowing I. Well, he actually just is a man who has a suit and shrinks. So he's not even genetically super, yeah. He's not Iron Man or um, uh, God, the Batman, or um, he's he's a he's a a technology-based superhero. He's a yeah, but yeah, where the Scott Lang Ant Man, uh, played by Paul Rudd, uh, has his power. Yeah, his reason to be in the suit is. He is an experienced robber and hacker, and um, the inventor of the Ant-Man suit, uh, Hank Pym, who is played by that Douglas fella. Michael Douglas, Michael yeah. Michael Douglas. Um, <laughs> gets him to, to steal some stuff, and he steals some stuff, and, uh, you know, it's kind of a classic tale of redemption and shrinking and growing thing. <laughs> and, uh, that classic of shrinking and growing. I suppose Alice in Wonderland's pretty classic. But um, the, the part... Yeah, so far, so... Marvel, I got that. The part that really surprised me was that not only does he shrink and grow from ant size to man size, that he also has a kind of affinity with ants, i.e. they will obey him and do his bidding. Yeah, it's never really fully explained because there's a at the beginning there's a lot of sort of like ants crawling creepily and you're like, okay, like maybe this is just like atmospheric and then it becomes clear that Hank Pym is just like talking to the ants and <laughs> Paul Rudd is like Wait, <laughs> wait a second! I thought this was about a suit. How come you're like literally? How are you telling these ants what to do? And he's just like he like nods his ear. Like he's got a kind of hearing aid thing. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. Sends sonic signals to get the ants to assist him with stuff when he's down to the size of an ant. Um, but what does that mean? It wasn't explained at all. He was just like, "Yep, I, I can talk to the ants." I mean, ultimately, he has a suit which allows him to shrink to a subatomic level without nuking a <laughs> yes, small he, city. Anna, right? At least they like, make it like. At least they make the effort to be like, "Yes, we just removed the space between atom particles," and you're like, obviously, that's bollocks. But I, I appreciate the gesture. Whereas with the ants thing, they were like, mm, "Don't ask too many questions. We can speak to ants." But I think <laughs> something we should probably ask some questions uh, from. I'm aware of. I'm suddenly aware of being the, 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 the male guest on this week's episode, <laughs> is uh, the, the somewhat problematic treatment of women in the film. Oh, yes. Uh, Anna and I actually went to see this film together, and partway through she leaned over to me to when you, you notice how her hair has got less sexy as she's got more approachable. Yeah, I, well, actually, I think it's kind of sexier, but yeah, they like it's very, very severe, and then they're like, oh, wait, she's nice now, we'll take off the red lipstick and like muffle it up a bit. Like, yeah, so she has... Um, uh, the main female character, Hank Pym's daughter, Hope, has has this very kind of severe, sharp sort of business lady bob. And then when she becomes kind of more approachable and lets her guard down, then she's got like 
beachy waves and freckles <laughs> and it's just yeah it's it's kind of obvious what we're supposed to think there yeah and i mean i'm um, so maria norris who uh for the staggers writes pieces on anti-terror for me had tweeted and she said if if hope was called hal then it would be about a father like training his son to do something of course whereas instead of just like nope better get a dude in but i don't think that she's actually the only woman who has the short drift because the the really troubling side thing is is the Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Scott Lang is like an absent dad who still thinks it's okay to turn up unannounced <laughs> at the home of his ex-wife and her stroke, partner. Stroke his daughter's face. Stroke his daughter, give them gifts that they don't want them to give. Just, you know, he, Scott Lang does all of the things that controlling ex-partners do yeah he is just the classic deadbeat dad in this film and the 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 interesting thing is actually in another way the script half seems to realize this because the um the the stepfather is actually in many ways one of the most sympathetic characters in the film he's trying his yeah. best to do his job uh there's he's one cop, point yeah. where despite the fact that he has no power and is definitely going to be utterly destroyed by the villain he puts himself in front of uh of his stepdaughter, and he ultimately lets Ant Man get off in order to do the best by his adopted family. And doesn't doesn't he also at the point the sort of climax in the movie when everything's exploding? He you know he runs towards the fire like he runs into the explosion yeah. to see if he can help. Yeah, you're right. He is ultimately the hero. Yeah, and they do start off sort of introducing him as like oh what does he call him? He calls him an ass hat or yeah. something. One of the things I think is really interesting about this film is take the image of the ant and its like approach to whether we should be like really industrious or whether we should like prioritize our families and that mm. kind of thing basically this is a very like anti-big industry film scott lang yeah as you said earlier he's like a hacker who like brought down a massive corporation because they were like you know cheating the little guy inverted commas his problem is that he's not providing for his family well enough and yeah i was thinking about ants and horace writes that ants make conscious and careful provision for the future and i think this is a film about like what happens when you don't provide for the future as an industry so 
person in his personal life he has to like provide for the future mm. of his daughter and then this big company that's trying to make the tiny suits um is not really thinking about what happens in the future and there's also the um the element to that of there are a few one of the knowing references you mentioned is that shield and the avengers shouldn't have this technology yeah Pym wants to keep it out of their hands because they can't be trusted to look after the future with such temptation with such you know what they could do with this um so he's kind of trying to guard guard his technology against the future this film has like a lot of bad points Mm. we should say but i think if you do want to take it seriously which is obviously what we try to do here i think the interesting tension within it is between the importance of industry versus the importance of social bonds Mm. and i think ants traditionally stand for both those things at once industry and social bonds both milton and wordsworth talk about Mm. them as like creatures that have just incredibly strong like empathy for each other and like work together in a in a in a very like human way and you see that actually a lot in the the intro almost to the the heist scene where um paul rudd as ant-man is flying on the back of his favorite ant called anthony um, (laughs) and anthony gets hit by a bullet or something and dies or a raindrop or something like he he falls basically and he falls to the ground um but paul rudd just falls straight onto the back of another rant and everything carries on and it's sort of like the the overall i don't know what's the word for a, a collective of ants but anyway the the overall sense swarm, of a, the overall sense of the swarm is bigger than just one individual absolutely yeah and it's like when wordsworth talks about how um ants are strong by social league and then when he talks about london in his like really anti-london poem mm. he calls it a monstrous ant hill of a too busy world so if you become too interested in i guess finance would be the ultimate mm. thing here and not in what's best for each other everything collapses and you have to put on a tiny suit and fly in and save it all we should say a bit about as well about the the visuals of the film because um the the kind of I, I found it hilarious, but the the sort of to the death fight scene where Ant the Ant Man the good guy is fighting the bad guy who is also in a sort of shrinky growy suit. Their big fight the where Ant Man the good guy is fighting the bad guy in also in a shrinky growy suit takes place in a child's bedroom and. They both have the ability, as well as shrinking themselves, to shrink and grow other objects around them. So you get the kind of repetitively hilarious visual mm-hmm. of them fighting on a toy train set and then one of them grows the train and a massive Thomas the Tank Engine bursts out of the top of the house. Um, I really enjoyed that. There is, there's just nothing not amusing about something that was small being <laughs> large. I don't know. Yeah, I, I also thought it's actually one of the things that they do very cleverly in the uh, the fight scene, and it might just be nice thought because there were a lot of families who'd gone to see it together. Mm. Is you have this scene of ultimate peril where the you know, the monster comes home to your bedroom, which is the bit yeah. you're meant to be safe in, uh, which is this kind of classic thing that Terence Dix, the kind of legendary, almost the creator of modern Doctor mm. Who, uh, yeah, kind of in its kind of seventies peak. So yeah, what's really scary is not monsters in space; it's coming home and finding a yeti on the toilet, and. Um, it actually takes this sort of quite primal fear and makes it sort of child-friendly again because there's this fight, there's the child hiding in the closet, but then you zoom out and it's a fight on a train train set than, you know, people have seen in thousands of houses. So Mm. it was both funny and quite clever. Mm. Um, Yeah, and that was one of the moments where we felt like um, Edgar Wright's influence came in, didn't we, with some of the shots where he was kind of like playing with size because Edgar Wright kind of got 
booted out of this film, didn't he? Yeah. There, there was like a dispute in the studio. Yeah, those shots where they sort of like really zoom in and zoom out made me think a lot of like those classic Shaun of the Dead style. And using a lot of sound effects along with the jump cuts. I mean, the one I always yeah. think of um, as being very classically him is in Shaun of the Dead when Simon Pegg's character is just gearing himself like, right, we're going to have to like go and fight zombies. And they get in the car and you get like door slam, seatbelt click, window up as like three quick sound effects and three quick jump yeah. cuts and I was like that's that's classic I go right and there was quite a lot of that and also um lest we forget the hot fuzz scene in the model village where mm. you know he he is impaled on the spire of a church through his mouth because yeah. it's a model church so obviously those that kind of playfulness I think is present even if like the script was probably not up to Edgar Wright standards no of... one offered anyone a cornetto no. <laughs> I, I am I am I mean in general once the kind of Marvel era is over because obviously they are sort of the you know boring observation that thousands of people have made before incoming alert they are kind of the westerns of the modern era there's mm. one every couple of months they're these big events and they're sort of enjoyable sort of smart dumb movies when they when the marvel era is over and the story gets written i'm fascinated to see what the difference is between this final version and the right yeah version were mm. um we should also say something about the choice of paul rudd as yeah. ant-man because i <laughs> I mean, I don't really keep up with Marvel movie universe news, so I had no idea that he was starring in a Marvel film. And, you know, because Paul Rudd is the guy who was, like, in Friends and films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Ron Burgundy's, like, crass mate in Anchorman. Yeah, Yeah, you called him the archetypal beta male on the way to the cinema, which is absolutely what you need for a film where the, the superhero admits that he's only there because he's expendable. And and because he's got a cool suit. Yeah. Like, he's not got a kind of genetic modification that makes him awesome. He's just wearing some other genius's invention. Um, but I thought he acquitted himself really well. And for whoever came up with this, but fair play to the person who thought that, well, rather than trying to make him seem Captain America-esque heroic, we're going to use the fact that he's a comic actor to do things like disrupt the cloying, tender moment between the father and his daughter. Mm. Um and we're going to do that kind of like awkward comedy, and uh, yeah, I think that was a nice, a nice tonal addition. I think yeah. that was the interesting thing because it didn't. My fear when they dumped Edgar Wright was that they were going to. It was going to feel like a very generic Marvel yeah. movie, and it had all of the hallmarks of being a Marvel movie while feeling, feeling exactly as you say, feeling sort of slightly different and uh, and and handling in a slightly different way. I think. The odd thing is, in terms of, sort of good casting, I felt that it was a much better treatment of one of the more off-piste heroes, and I don't know if either of you have seen the Amazing Spider-Man films with Andrew Garfield, yeah. mm. where Andrew Garfield is just too attractive, too yeah. successful, and too rich-looking to be Peter Parker, so he just comes across as a bit of a tool. Oh, uh, no, I love him, so I do. But I found it, like, inversely quite difficult to buy Paul Rudd in the scenes where, you know, she there's, like, a, quite a good, like, female gazy moment where she's, like, looking at him shirtless, and it's, like, her eyes, his body, her yeah. eyes, his body. And I was just like, nah, sorry, can't buy but i think overall a fun trip yeah film wise it's kind of like it's the you know you wouldn't kick out of bed of films it's it's no iron man 2 yeah you would you would always pick ant man over iron man 2 if you like the uh the big cow face up small cow far away joke from father ted it's probably a movie for you (laughs) basically excellent point
Last week, I recommended the film Obvious Child to Caroline. So what did you think of Obvious Child? I really enjoyed it. Um, I feel like it, it's a film that belongs very much in a kind of canon with uh, Lena Dunham's girls and bits of Broad City and stuff like that. It's very much a kind of like young women in New York Absolutely, thing. yeah. And I really like that. And of course, the so the main thrust of the film is this character who um, is a a stand-up comedian who gets pregnant from a one-night stand and decides to have an abortion and then it's just sort of like everything that happens to her after that. Um, I liked how... I suppose this, is, this sounds like a, it's trivialising it, but it's not. But I liked how light-hearted a take it was Absolutely. on abortion. Something like Juno, which again is a light-hearted take in a, in a sense, in that it's very funny. It's, it's different to that in that there's no real like great emotional wrestling over the decision whether or not to have an abortion. Yeah. And it's not. it doesn't seem to be a very uh, didactic film at all. It reminded me a lot of... I think there's, a, there's an episode in the first series of Girls where one of the characters is having an abortion and her friend has made the appointment and her three friends have all come to the clinic to support her Mm. and she doesn't turn up. She just doesn't show up. Mm. And um, the one who's organised it all for her is kind of feeling a bit grumpy about about this. And um, Hannah comforts her by going like, oh, baby, but you you threw a lovely abortion. (laughs) And and that's kind of how I felt with this film. It's sort of like um, her, her best friend who kind of helps her through all of it at no point sort of puts any stress on her about like are you really sure about this like, have you thought about this? just like i trust you you know what you're doing let's try and do this in a way that's unharmful to you as possible yeah but even in girls like the fact that jessa doesn't turn up is kind of a little bit like oh this is a big decision yeah. for a woman to make and i'm sure that is true for a lot of women i don't want to suggest that it's not but i think one of the things that is just so nice about it is that you know yeah she just goes she doesn't tell him, does she, about it beforehand? It takes her a long time. To... It takes her a long time. She there are several sort of moments where she try kind of tries to tell him. Um, this guy who you know she she meets in the bar where she does her stand up act and they like they get some drinks and one thing leads to another and mm. and they end up in bed. Um, and then they kind of are, after she's found out she's pregnant and before her clinic appointment she hangs out with him some more and they they really get on and she really likes him and she realizes she wants to tell him but every time she tries something sort of mediumly hilarious intervenes like they're in a restaurant and she's kind of on the edge having dinner and she's on the edge of telling him and there's like an old couple in the corner and he just suddenly comes out with like oh i can't wait to be a granddad she's like i can't tell him now (laughs) yeah i wonder so this is so essentially it's a rom-com how successful was it for you as like a both in terms of rom and com firstly Um, com Mediumly so, yeah. In com terms, um, <laughs> I liked the kind of gross-out humor aspect of it quite a bit. Like her, her sort of the characters act, stand-up act. Yeah, goes the sort quite, of meta theater yeah. moment is is the fact that she, there's lots of kind of as you'd expect for a film about a comedian. There's lots of sort of shots of her yeah. like uh, stand-up routines, and also like in her conversations, people will be like, "Oh, stop being like the stand-up you." Sometimes, yeah. so there's like lots of kind of joke jokes. Yeah, um, and I I liked most of that. I found it funny, um, and I liked how 
I'm always I'm always into when like women feel like they can make jokes about stuff that happens with their bodies. You don't have to take it so seriously. Yeah, I, there's a moment where she basically is feeling. Well, it's right at the beginning. The, the, the film starts it, with this idea that she's got, going through a really tough breakup, mm. um, where her boyfriend and her best friend were cheating on her, and uh, she does this really what I found quite disturbing stand-up routine in like the depths of her despair, where she yeah. like it, obviously it's meant to be very very like hard to watch, but she like talks about like in quote marks doing a murder suey all over them, like yeah. because she's like so full of rage, and like that phrase has stuck with me today because I found it so like oh my god I'm literally witnessing this person's breakdown so in that sense it was quite successful I think in like yeah finding the dark side of comedy without it being too like in your face dreadful I was recently dumped up with my very nice close friend who's such a nice person decided to sleep with my boyfriend I would love to just murder suicide them and then in in rom terms I I wasn't massively invested in the idea of them as a couple. Um, I really like the guy. I can't remember the actor's name, but he is Plop from The Office. He's Plop from The Office, and he <laughs> looks... I don't even know if he is, but he looks really Canadian. Yeah, he looks absolutely like he just spends his weekends hiking, doesn't yeah. he? <laughs> um, and I think... I, I feel like because the film is so explicitly from her point of view, we're not we're not really supposed to feel like we know very much about him. True, or yeah. He he exists only as he pertains to her, which is you know given the way around the genders are quite a refreshing thing for that to be the case in this film. Although she discovers that he has, has another relation to her life, which that he's he her, so her mum is teaching him. Yes, and so he he ends up in her mum's house in a moment of very much like oh you're not someone I know in this way, and you're like in my. F- familial space yeah so just like with the granddad with kids moments there are all these kind of little moments that sort of try and force them into a family setting together and i think it's quite refreshing that instead of caving to that pressure they just they you know that it still manages to be a happy ending rom commy film mm. without them having to be like oh yes we must like be a family mm. and have children and babies um and perhaps slightly counterintuitively another thing i liked about it which was, even though I think it did get a bit of kind of write-up at the, when it came out as like, oh, the abortion comedy, ooh, daring, mm-hmm. trying to do comedy about abortion, particularly in the US, because they, the whole debate is so much more fraught there. Um, it It's not a film that's trying to really make points or answer questions. It no. is fundamentally a funny film. That's, yeah. they, they were trying to make a funny film first and then say political things second. And sometimes when, when you've when you're aware that something's got that reputation or been written up like that, it's actually quite a relief to just experience it as entertainment. Mm. Um, so I, I like that feeling about it. Yeah, it's awful when films sort of eat themselves in their mm. attempts to be controversial. And yeah. this film is actually very gentle, I think, in comparison to how it was made out to be. Yeah, yeah so um, definitely a good recommendation. Thank okay, you very much. Great. I enjoyed it. So what have you got for me? So I thought um, we'd go into a genre we've not explored much yet on the podcast, which is comic books. Um, I'm not, um, very knowledgeable about comics at all, but I have a good friend who is, and who, whenever he comes across something that he thinks I'll like, he kind of sends it my way. And he did this with a relatively new series called The Wicked and the Divine, uh, which is by a British comics writer, illustrator team, uh, Jamie McKelvey and Kieran Gillen. Um, and it's, it's kind of like... YA comics. Okay, cool. So, so it's about a, a group of young people who. It's a fairly classic story. It's a group of young pe- people who discover that they're kind of superheroes, or, or rather, that they're, they're reincarnations of ancient gods. 
Um, and this happens like once every 90 years in this group as and it's happened again and then once once they've been reincarnated they live for two years like two really sort of bright burning years and then they die and this is about their kind of their both their their self-discovery and also the way the world responds to them that sounds not like anything i've read before um and it's got i think it's got a really interesting visual style as well it's very like bright and bold and interesting um and also very modern i think quite a lot of um there's definitely i mean I'm not very well informed, informed enough to say this, but there's definitely a strand of comics that is kind of nostalgic, mm-hmm. that sticks with visual styles that have always been the case, particularly for long-running series. But this is absolutely not that. They've departed from that and invented their own language. Oh, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to read it. So we're actually going on holiday, yay, because it's summer, um, for a couple of weeks. So this is the last, seriously, for two weeks, uh, but we'll be back on the 17th of August. So put it in your diary, guys. Yeah, and in the meantime, send us lots of questions and recommendations and stuff for what we can do when we get back. See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Anna. And I'm Caroline. You can find us on iTunes. Our Twitter is at SeriouslyPod. And if you want to send us an email, we're SeriouslyPod, S-R-S-L-Y, pod at gmail.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.